Chapter 27 of House, Garden, and Field by L.C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Herring. The mock dissertation, which is aimed at all who discourse learnedly on very ordinary themes, hits the writers of object lessons, nature studies, etc., pretty hard. The best known of all mock dissertations is probably Swift's Pious Meditations on a Broomstick, intended to take off Boyle's occasional reflections upon several subjects. Another, which happens to ridicule just such a chapter as the present one, is Nash's Praise of the Red Herring, to be found in his Lenten Stuff, 1599. It was Nash's humor to write a tedious length on a whimsical topic without giving a particle of useful information. He discourses upon himself and his late adventures, upon Yarmouth, the trade of Yarmouth, and the ancient history of Yarmouth, gives extracts from learned authors which go to prove that a red herring is wholesome of a frosty morning, and sets up a claim that the red herring is more than a match for all other English merchandise, wool, cloth, corn, lead, tin, iron, butter, cheese, none of them is the fellow to a red herring. He cries out in the middle of his discourse, quote, let me see, hath anybody in Yarmouth heard of Leander and Hero? Unquote and goes on to tell the story in his own way. He explains how the herring came to be king of the fishes, by what accident the smoking of herrings was hit upon, how the herring was honored by the Pope of Rome, what is best to draw on hounds to the scent, and who first put herrings in casks. Once he begins to excuse himself, quote, There be of you it may be that will account me a palterer for hanging out the sign of the red herring in my title page, and no such feast towards, for aught you can see, unquote but the rigmarole goes on as before, and ends without one word to the purpose. Such was the new journalism in Shakespeare's days, when, as poor Nash complained, quote, the seven liberal sciences and a good leg would scarce get a scholar bread and cheese, unquote. If this is what the mock dissertation ends in, the triumph over the writer of grave discourses is brief and poor. It is the grasshopper mocking the ant. So let us not be ashamed to draw, if we can, a little instruction from the herrings which afforded Nash nothing but amusement. Even a red herring is not a bad study, but a fresh herring is far better, and as fresh herrings are very easily procured in the season, I will suppose that we have one before us. We remark first the general shape of the body, the rounded back with its single dorsal fin, the forked tail fin, in front of which, on the ventral side, comes the anal fin. Between this and the head, the belly thins out to a sharp edge, and is serrated by a number of bony plates, each of which has its own keel. There are two paired fins, answering to the fore and hind legs of a quadruped, or to the arms and legs of man. The front pair, pectoral fins, are set just behind the head, while the hind pair, ventral fins, come beneath the forepart of the dorsal fin. The fins of a herring are supported by bony rays, which are soft and flexible, each being made up of a series of small joints. Stiff spines, like those which support the dorsal fin of a perch, or stick out in front of the dorsal fin of a stickleback, are altogether wanting in the herring. All parts of the body except the top of the head are covered with thin, flexible, silvery scales, which are so easily rubbed off, if we pass the finger from the tail to the head of the fish, that we might suppose them to be quite loose. They are not really loose. A delicate, transparent membrane overlies them all and forms a sheath to every one. This membrane is the proper epiderm or outer skin layer, and the scales lie within it, 
being formed from the derm or deep skin layer. The scales of fishes have therefore a different origin from the scales of a snake or the scales on the feet of birds, which are truly epidermal and not dermal. The large eyes cannot be closed, but are slightly protected by transparent folds, something like eyelids. The eyelids of the herring, however, are not upper and lower, but fore and hind. The opening between them is vertical and cannot be enlarged or diminished. If you force open the mouth of a fresh herring, you will find that the upper jaws are pulled downwards when the lower jaw is depressed, as if to prevent small objects escaping from the sides of the mouth. The gape is not wide, nor is it necessary that it should be, for the herring feeds upon minute crustacea which swim at the surface of the sea, and its mouth has very naturally quite different proportions than those of such fish as the pike which pursues large animals. The teeth of a herring are so small that they can hardly be seen without a magnifying glass. There is a patch of them on the roof of the mouth and another on the tongue, both of which are more easily felt than seen. The herring has particularly open gills and a large smooth gill cover. Raise the gill cover and look at the gills, row behind row of soft red filaments. The wide gill clefts make it possible to capture herrings, pilchards, and mackerel by the drift net, which is a long net hung vertically at the surface of the sea. In trying to force their way through the net, they get meshed. The gill covers catch, and the fishes are held fast. From a herring or any other fish which has been boiled, you can easily extract the lens of the eye a small hard globe, white in a boiled fish. Why is the lens, which is flattened in man, sheep, and ox, globular in a fish? Because of the high refractive power of water. There is little difference between the refractive power of water and that of the substance of the lens, so the curvature of the surface must be very great in any animal which has to see under water. In the head of a herring you will find a pair of hard white otoliths. They belong to the inner ear, and in some way that we very little understand serve to increase the power either of hearing or of some other sense. They are more easily extracted from the head of a large fish, such as a cod or a haddock. The ear in the herring or any other fish has no passage by which the vibrations of the water can be directly transmitted, and of course there is no drum in such an ear. The powerful vibrations set up in water can pass even through bones and flesh. There is no doubt that herrings can hear. Huxley tells us, in his lecture on the herring, quote, that in a dark night when the water is phosphorescent, or as the fishermen say, there is plenty of mere fire, it is a curious spectacle to watch the effect of sharply tapping the side of the boat as it passes over a shoal. The herrings scatter in all directions, leaving streaks of light behind them like shooting stars, unquote. From Huxley's Collected Works, Volume 4, page 473 to 492. A herring is notorious for the number of bones which it contains, long, slender, needle-like bones which stand out in unexpected places and occasionally stick in the throat of a hasty feeder. It is worthwhile to clear the flesh away from an inch or two of the backbone of a herring towards the middle of the body and thus expose the bones. There are various ways of doing this. I can often succeed in dissecting the herring on my plate with a table knife. An anatomist who is perfectly indifferent to bad smells would prefer to macerate the fish, that is, put it in a dish of water, and set it on the roof until the flesh is so soft that it can be washed away with a gentle stream of water. Boil the herring if you prefer that plan, but you will have to be extremely cautious in handling the boiled fish, for it will fall to pieces at a touch. 
it is better to souse it in boiling water, scrape, brush, or pick away as much flesh as will come off easily, souse it again, and go on until you have got a few vertebrae free of flesh and quite perfect. You will find them very different from the vertebrae of a rabbit or any quadruped. The bodies or centra of the herring's vertebrae are cupped at both ends, a weak form of articulation, but strong enough for an animal whose weight is supported by so dense a medium as water. But the most noteworthy point about the vertebral column of the herring is that it sends out two sets of ribs, an upper and a lower set, besides dorsal spines. Where the tail begins, the arrangement is further complicated by the addition of more bones, many of which are very loosely connected with the backbone. Some of these last are forked, so that the herring really deserves its reputation as being full of bones. I know of no fish to match it, though many fishes have both upper and lower ribs. These outgrowths give excellent support to the muscles of the trunk, but why they should be so numerous is more than I can explain. Just beneath the backbone and running almost from head to tail is the silvery air bladder. It is possible by careful search to find the air duct which leads from the stomach to the bladder, pass a pipe into it, and blow out the bladder. The chief use of this air receptacle is no doubt to make the fish just so buoyant that it can keep at the surface of the water without effort. Then it can hold itself upright by the slightest exercise of its paired fins and propel itself by the sculling action of the tail. It is worthwhile to study the action in a live goldfish. Many fishes have no duct to the air bladder and can only fill it with gases drawn from the blood, but the herring's air bladder has not only a duct communicating with the stomach, but a fine passage passing backwards and opening on the surface of the body, as well as two slender tubes which enter the head and lead up to the organ of hearing. The mode of action of these complicated passages is hardly at all understood. It is of interest to remark that the air bladder of a fish is the beginning of the lung, by which quadrupeds, birds, and reptiles breathe. We have all the stages of development. First, the bladder becomes cellular, that is, divided into compartments. Then it becomes double, then it acquires special blood vessels leading to and from the heart, and lastly, the simple air duct becomes elaborated into a windpipe with rings of cartilage and perhaps an organ of voice. When you next see a boiled cod or haddock at table, look for the air bladder. It will not, of course, be inflated with air, because all the air will have been driven out by the heat, but you will recognize it by its silvery coat. There is no air duct in the cod or haddock. A hard road herring is a female, and the hard roe consists of eggs. There are many thousands of them, and in a fresh herring you will notice how sticky they are. They are shed into the sea, fall to the bottom, and adhere to the stones. If the eggs are squeezed from a ripe female into a vessel of water, they stick to the bottom, and in half an hour are so firmly attached that the vessel may be turned upside down without the eggs falling out. Herring eggs are saved by their density and their stickiness from one source of danger. They cannot be swept by currents into unsuitable hatching places. They escape also vast numbers of voracious animals, mostly fishes, which are always searching the surface of the sea for something eatable. But they escape one danger only to fall into another. The bottom-feeding flatfishes are on the lookout for herring eggs and often cram their stomachs with them. The young herring has enormous eyes and a very slender body, from which at first a yoke bag protrudes. Until it has attained the age of three months and a length of about two inches, it has no scales, 
and the body has not the thin, flat shape which it afterwards acquires. Herrings of from three to six months are called white bait. They are fond of one another's company in all stages of growth, and swim about in shoals, approaching the shore at the spawning times, which are spring and autumn. In order to obtain protected spots for their eggs, they will enter long, narrow inlets where the water is almost fresh. The salmon goes farther still and ascends rivers far beyond the reach of the tide in order to spawn. Sprats, shads, and pilchards are all so like herrings that they can only be distinguished from them by close observation. Sardines are young pilchards. End of chapter 27